This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 19th of March 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Stephen DL joins me to chat through the day's front pages. Plus, we hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. The expanding hose we have on the terrace to water the plants has split. So he who cannot fold towels ordered a replacement online. It's just arrived. The brand name, Homo's. How did they know? <laughs> and Andrew Muller tells us what we learned this week. And back in the world, this whimsical weekly news wrap used to inhabit before Vladimir Putin went all in on his Peter the Great cosplay, we learned that whatever celebrations you might have indulged in to commemorate the discovery of the world's largest potato were premature. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. First, though, here are the headlines. Today, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky called for comprehensive peace talks with Moscow to stop its invasion of his homeland, warning it would otherwise take Russia several generations to recover from losses suffered in the war. Kiev and Moscow reported some progress in talks this week towards a political formula that would guarantee Ukraine security protection outside of the NATO alliance. U.S. President Joe Biden warned Chinese leader Xi Jinping on Friday of consequences if Beijing gave material support to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the White House said, while both sides stressed the need for a diplomatic solution to the crisis. Targeting Beijing with the sort of extensive economic sanctions already imposed on Russia would have potentially dire consequences for the United States and the world, given that China is the world's second largest economy and the largest exporter. And three Russian cosmonauts arrived safely at the International Space Station on Friday, docking their Soyuz capsule with the outpost for a mission that continues a 20-year shared Russian-US presence in orbit, despite tensions over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The arrival of the latest cosmonaut team, warmly welcomed by four Americans, two Russians and a German crewmate already aboard, came a day after the European Space Agency announced it has suspended a joint robotic rover mission to Mars with Russia due to the Ukraine conflict. I'm Georgina Godwin and that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's look at some of those stories in more detail as reported in this morning's newspapers. And I'm pleased to say that joining me today is Stephen Diel, who's a writer, a broadcaster and a Russia analyst. And of course, it's that last uh, cap uh, or rather very smart black hat that you're wearing <laughs> that we're particularly interested in this morning, Stephen. Uh, should we start with the Washington Post, who are really looking at what Zelensky's endgame is? Yes, that's um, I mean, the, the lead headline in our news just now as well. Um, um, Zelensky seems to be pushing more and more day by day for, for for peace talks and talking about peace talks at the same time as saying we're not giving up anything. He made a slight concession earlier in the week by uh, saying that um, NATO membership was, if not off the table, then then a long way off uh, for Ukraine. Um, but that's that's the the Washington Post headline: Zelensky's end game a mystery to the West. And 
whilst the West, of course, continues to support him totally, they, they, they're not sure whether he's playing some, some cunning game, whether he's prepared to give greater ground to the Russians. In fact, you know, physically, he said all along, no, no, we're not going to give up any territory. Um, you, uh, Crimea is still Ukrainian. Uh, the Donbass is still Ukrainian. Um, but the, the, the words coming from Zelensky do stress more and more that he wants some kind of peace deal and, as he sees it, from a position of strength. Um, so I think that the, the, the West is hoping that this is because... Uh, the Russian advance and the Russian attack has not gone, clearly has not gone, as Putin expected when he launched it. Um, and Zelensky seems to think he's got some advantage there. Mm. And a little bit later on the foreign desk, Andrew Muller will be investigating exactly why it hasn't gone as Russia expected. Now, you say from a position of strength and that they're not going to give up uh, any territory at all. But of course, we've seen the almost complete destruction of Mariupol. Uh, I mean, that's just... It, it's the worst fears, I think, realised. Um, I have in front of me El País, uh, the, obviously the Spanish daily. Mariupol ya no existe. Mariupol just doesn't exist anymore. Um, and uh, horrific stories, horrific pictures. Um, there are still people inside the uh, the theatre which was hit by the Russians, we think, deliberately. Um, that would fit in with a lot of other things they've done. They seem to have taken the approach with Mariupol, that is going to be, um, as they've acted in, for example, in Grozny and Chechnya in, in, the, in the Second Chechen War in the early 2000s, as they've acted in Syria with Aleppo is often cited as somewhere just raised to the ground. There's been fears of this happening in various parts of Ukraine, but Mariupol seems to have been the place where they've decided, right, this is what we're going to do, completely destroy the place. Um, of course, it's, a key, uh, it's in a key position it's a key city for the Russians because one of the first aims of this war, quite clearly, was all those forces they'd built up in Crimea to use those to push up to the Donbass. Because if we think of our geography, you've got Crimea as that peninsula in the Black Sea and to the northeast of it is the Donbass. But there was a large piece of territory still that was, was still controlled by Ukraine. And quite clearly, one of Putin's aims was to, to, to join those up so you used the forces which have been flooded into Crimea thanks to the bridge that they built very quickly after seizing Crimea in 2014. Um, mass, massive troops there and use those to push through to the Donbass. But the biggest city in the way is Mariupol. Mm. And it seems that um, for reasons that only he will understand, Putin decided that the way to deal with that was simply to wipe it off the face of the earth. And, and as I say, El País says that. There's, I mean, other papers as well. Obviously, that is a big story that's um, appearing everywhere. And there are still thought to be maybe even a 1,000 children in the basement of the theatre. They, the, It's thought the basement survived. Um, I mean, I've seen the pictures. They, they put on either side of it, they put in Russian, Dieti, children, so that anyone flying above would know what it was. But we've already heard... Um, Russian pilots say, well, we've given our, been given our orders, and even if we realise it was a block of flats, well, that's the orders, we fire, we fire at it. Um, uh, so, uh, the, you know, the, the, the question, of, of course, of war crimes comes up, and I don't think there's any question that there are a lot of war crimes being committed. I see that there's a breaking news line coming through that Russia says it's launched hypersonic missiles. This is the first time that it's actually admitted to this. And, I mean, uh, these these missiles, uh, they're able to travel five times faster than the speed of sound. Uh, and it's, it's, I mean, this is 
devastating news. That's appalling news. That's absolutely appalling news um, because one of the successes of the Ukrainian armed forces so far has been in, in shooting down missiles. Um, their air defence has been pretty good, particularly, over, for example, over um, in, around and in uh, Kiev, the capital. Um, but if the Russians, even if the Russians have admitted to doing this, then, I mean, that... That that's that's almost like saying, yeah, we're committing war crimes. So what? What are you going to do about it? Yeah, yeah. Stephen, I want to just have a quick look at um, how the FT covers uh, Vladimir Putin's address. Uh, something very odd happened in the TV coverage of this. Yes, um, Putin uh, was addressing a huge crowd in the Luzhniki Stadium, which is Moscow's. Uh, main stadium. It's where the World Cup final was held in 2018, which is uh, appalling in itself that the World Cup was allowed to take place in Russia in 2018. <laughs> but um, that's where it, it was. So it holds um, something like 80,000 people. Um, clearly, it was deliberately packed. People were told they had to be there even if they didn't uh, volunteer to go. And Putin, thinking he's terribly cool in a sort of puffer jacket and white polo neck uh, underneath, um, sort of got up to speak and was giving this rousing speech and talking about the Nazis running Ukraine and so on, which is so obscene anyway in a country that's run with a Jewish president. Um, and suddenly he was cut off in his speech and it went to a, a singer. Um, his spokesman, um, Dmitry Peskov, who, of course, um, you know, is never known to tell the truth, um, he, uh, he, he said, oh, it was just a, it was a you know, technical glitch. But the thought, obviously, is that actually among those 80,000 people, um, some people were actually starting to protest. Um, we, we don't know for sure because, because it was cut off, but it, it just seems very strange to get a, 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 um, a, a technical glitch just at that point, just as, um, you know, Luzhniki was becoming the new Nuremberg of the 1930s. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, just a very quick look at Japan and their stance on refugees, which has changed. Yes, indeed, and that is... Um, um, I rustle the pages so people know that we are looking at newspapers in the newspaper review. Um, uh, yes, also it's in the FT, actually. Um, Japan grants Ukrainians entry in big shift on refugee policy. Um, uh, Japan will permit entry to the country by Ukrainians, um, even if they have no relatives or acquaintances. And, and this is being seen as a, as a huge shift in, uh, in Japanese policy. And what I found particularly interesting is that this is yet another example of how this war is is changing the world. Um, because think what we've already seen from Germany. You know, suddenly Germany, which has ever since the Second World War, and many would say quite rightly, has been very wary of, of um, using its armed forces anywhere else or even of having a, a decent-sized army. Well, Germany is now, you know, going to spend uh, 100 billion euros more on its army uh, and uh, allowing their weapons to be uh, given to Ukraine and... and uh, uh, and their soldiers will be more in evidence. And now we have Japan also go going back on a policy which has had a... They, they tended to refuse refugees, and now they're accepting that. You know, this this really is... We are in the middle of history. We are in a, in a, a, his, uh, a moment in time that is, is changing world history. Mm. Well, let's, uh, let's join Andrew Molina to see uh, his interpretation of history this week. We learned this week that among those unconvinced by Russia's insistence that its forces are only striking military targets in Ukraine is Vitaly Klitschko, former heavyweight champion of the world, now mayor of Kiev. Putin says he's only targeting military targets. Bullshit. Sorry. Where is military target? This building is military target. 
But we continued to learn that people just not taking Russian rhetoric tremendously seriously was becoming a dominant theme of the Ukraine conflict. We learned that Russia had decided that sanctions against key individuals was a game two nations could play and accordingly issued a long list of current and former American officials who would henceforth be forbidden from visiting Russia or doing business with it. <laughs> Well, indeed. Quick to respond with as close to a W for whatever emoji as Twitter currently permits was former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, whose response will now be read by Monocle24's online eye-roll desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. I really want to thank the Russian Academy for this Life Achievement Award. We also learned that White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, an already established master of a level of deadpan passive-aggressive put-down that could wither granite, was not about to pass up an opportunity like this, and we learned therefrom that Russia may technically have sanctioned the wrong Joe Biden. I would first note that President Biden is a junior, so they may have sanctioned his dad. May he rest in peace. The second piece I would say is that won't surprise any of you that none of us are planning tourist trips to Russia. None of us have bank accounts that we won't be able to access, so we will forge ahead. We did learn, however, scrutinising Russia's list of sanctioned American office holders, that one name was noticeable by its absence for scarcely imaginable reasons. I think he's done an, a, really a, a great job of outsmarting our country. He could not have been nicer. He was so nice. He is really very much of a leader. He said nice things about me. I like him because he called me a genius. Putin did call me a genius and he said I'm the future of the Republican Party. He's a strong leader, I can tell you that, unlike what we have. Run by a very smart cookie, much smarter, much more cunning than our president. <laughs> On the subject of whom, we learned that President Vladimir Putin of Russia was having what we believe the young folks call a normal one, treating bemused Russian television viewers to a lengthy, if not interminable, justification for his rampage in Ukraine, which was in large part difficult to distinguish from one of those columns phoned into certain British newspapers by opinion-honking hacks to wind up their core readership of the angry and insane. Here is an excerpt read with due solemnity by Monocle's old men shouting at clouds, desk chief Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I am not at all judging those who have a villa in Miami or the French Riviera. Who cannot do without foie gras, oysters or so-called gender freedoms? The problem is absolutely not in this, but in the fact that many of these people, by their very nature, are mentally located precisely there, and not here, not with our people, not with Russia. We did learn, however, that at least one extremely serious public figure proposed to do something decisive about all this. Space-bothering weirdo and guy at the house party who wants to tell you who the real criminals are, Elon Musk, offered Vladimir Putin outside, tweeting as follows, as will now also be read by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, seeing as how we have him in the studio anyway. I hereby challenge Vladimir Putin to single combat. Stakes are Ukraine. We then learned that volunteering to hold the coats during this mooted geostrategic alehouse car park dust-up was Ramzan Kadyrov, the unlikable thug who has been performing mini-me duties for Putin in Chechnya these last couple of decades. Kadyrov goaded, indeed downright taunted, Musk as follows. Sit back down, Fernando. 
You need to pump up those muscles in order to change from the gentle Ilona into the brutal Ilona you need to be. Can I go now? By the way, this week's edition of The Stack, it's at 10 a.m. London time on Saturday. It isn't going to write itself. We'll be hearing from Uniqlo's John C.J. That's The Stack, 10 a.m. on Saturday. We'll cut that in the edit. No, we won't. This, this is what I have to put up with. So we're continuing to learn all round that even what might be the most serious crisis to have faced Europe since 1945 is not going to stop social media from bringing out everyone's inner trivial self-regarding nitwit. And back in the world, this whimsical weekly news wrap used to inhabit before Vladimir Putin went all in on his Peter the Great cosplay, we learned that whatever celebrations you might have indulged in to commemorate the discovery of the world's largest potato were premature. Last August in New Zealand, a smallholder couple near the settlement of Hamilton unearthed a spud weighing fully 7.8 kilograms, comfortably clearing the established mark of 5 kilos, duly made their case to the Guinness Book of World Records and awaited the descent of Kiwi media agog at what would be, by somnolent local standards, a veritably epoch-defining story, like New Zealand's equivalent of the Berlin Wall breaching or something, and we are at this point obliged to offer right of reply to Monocle 24's New Zealand desk chief, David Stevens. It is pretty big, to be fair. However... We learned that this mighty vegetable did not meet the exacting requirements of Guinness, who disqualified it as being not a potato at all, but the tuber of a type of gourd, whatever that even is. We have not learned, as we go to air, largely because we simply cannot be bothered to check whether its owners will be appealing. (laughs) For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you very much to Andrew. And speaking of gourds, uh, empty vessels may make the most noise, uh, as in evidence perhaps by the man who lives with a mini pony called Whiskey and a donkey called Lulu. I'm talking, of course, of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ah, yes, Arnie. Um, very interestingly, um, in the last couple of days, something has gone viral, and that is a actually quite moving. I found it. I, I watched the whole nine minutes of his, his address to the Russian people where he sits at his desk and he very quietly, without ranting or raving, he starts by saying how how wonderful um, Russia is and how his first hero was a Russian weightlifter, strongest man in the world, who he had the chance to shake his hand when he was... Um, Arnie was... Schwarzenegger was 14 years old. And then he goes on to say, you know, very calmly, you know, you've got to know what, you're, you know what your president is doing. You know, this is a war, you're killing people. And it's gone viral in Russia too, which is very interesting because the Russians are doing all they can, which is a sign of a, a regime under threat, I would say, to um, clamp down on social media as much as possible. So unless you've got a VPN... You can't get Facebook, um, you can't get Twitter. Um, Telegram, is, which is very popular with the Russians, is still available. But, um, you know, they are terrified of people knowing the truth. But it's getting out there and, and Arnie's doing his bit. Yeah, no, he, he certainly is. Um, Stephen, I, I know that well, I'm not supposed to say that you did have a bun in case your wife's listening. Absolutely. I No bun at all. No, I see no bun. Do you see a bun? No? No, it, it has disappeared remarkably quickly. <laughs> Thanks to Andrew Muller speaking for three, three or four minutes. Yeah. 
Uh, but I just did want to, to thank our cafe for sending down their delicious cinnamon buns and coffee. The uh, wonderful Monocle Cafe. Absolutely. Yeah. and But a couple of bits of Monocle news, actually, because... Um, uh, our shop has reopened uh, in on Chilton Street, uh, right next door, or just a couple of doors down from the cafe. Lovely big reopening, uh, and we'll be hearing a little bit more about that from Andrew Tuck uh, a, a, a little bit later on. Andrew uh, Tuck should be talking about the cafe, surely. I mean, and, you know, I'm old enough to remember when schools had tuck shops. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but another chance to, to, to have cinnamon buns is at our uh, San Moritz Monocle Weekender. Now, let me tell you all about this. It's to mark our 15th anniversary. And again, Andrew will be telling you all about the lovely party we had for that this weekend. Uh, Tyler Brule and our editors uh, and me um, will be in uh, San Moritz from the 1st to the 3rd of April. It'll be a special weekend of talks and walks and drinks and dancing in San Moritz. Uh, and there's going to be a wonderful interview uh, with the celebrated Dutch author Ilya Leonard Pfeiffer. Now, I went to Genoa to meet him a couple of weeks ago uh, about his book, Grand Hotel Europa. It's absolutely extraordinary. Such a great book. He really examines Europe's future and indeed Europe's past. Such an interesting man. And he's really uh, going to going to uh, unpick all of that uh, for us in a talk in Samaritz, which I can assure you sounds like tons and tons of fun. Um, Stephen, we wanted to talk about uh, dictators uh, and this is a piece in the New York Times uh, but not necessarily focused on Russia. No, then that was particularly interesting. Um, on the front page of the New York Times, which has a, a big picture of, um, of uh, defences in, in Kiev, um, why Putin is evoking the Nazis to justify war, saying how it's obscene that is. And on the other side, uh, the left-hand side um, uh, is uh, a piece called A Bad Year for Another Dictatorship by Paul Krugman. Uh, it's an opinion piece. and Love Krugman. He's always so great, isn't he? Well, this is, yes. I mean, this is a, it's a splendid piece because you, you start to explain where dictator comes from, from ancient Rome. Um, dictators, dictatorships were used uh, in in a short space of time when something had to be done quickly and you didn't have time to discuss it with everyone. But he goes on to point out that when things, when they last for a long time, they tend to go bad. And you think, well, he's talking about Russia. And then you continue to the inside on page 16 um, and you realise actually what he's talking about is China because China is being very badly hit once again by COVID. Uh, And one of the reasons is that they refuse to use the... um, mRNA vaccines that the West has been using, and they've been using older, less effective Chinese vaccines, and suddenly they're they're suffering once again. And he's he's putting this firmly at the door of um, Xi Jinping and saying this is this is what you get with the dictatorship when you don't get discussion of things when 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 you don't actually admit to problems and say look this is a better way of dealing with it. This is something that can happen. And China now apparently has got another huge wave of COVID, which is causing many deaths. And he says, look, we're not perfect in the West. He said there's 1,500 Americans a day dying still from from COVID. And Europe's uh, had a second wave and uh, recently. Um, But at least in the Western world, many, many people are vaccinated, indeed triple vaccinated, um, whereas the vaccines in China are not so good. So it's, it's very interesting how you think he's starting talking about Putin's dictatorship, which clearly it is, but it actually it's pointing at China and and and, and very clearly explained why they, what they're doing is not a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now let's turn to our editor in chief, Andrew Tuck. Here he is with his regular Saturday column. <laughs> 
My friend Gary says that his mum rates restaurants not on price or design or even on the food, but on their efficiency. When he was visiting her recently, he asked where they should go out for dinner, and she said, oh, we'll definitely go to the nice Chinese restaurant in town. You can have three courses and still be out in under 45 minutes. Now, while I can't compete with that kind of speed eating, I have noticed that me and the other half are not exactly restaurant lingerers. During the course of every day, we talk about what we need to get done, catch up about what we're working on, share some funny moments, occasionally bicker. How can he not know how to fold the towels in the right way after all these years? So when we go out to dinner, it's not like being on a first date. And sometimes I notice that we're asking for the bill while neighbouring tables have barely tackled the amuse-bouche. Last Sunday, we were in Palma de Mallorca and went for lunch at a place called Cor Barra Itaula. That's just beside the covered food market, Mercat de Olivar. It's still off-season in Palma, and on Sundays, the market is closed, so Cor was quiet. At the bar downstairs, there were just a couple of people drinking, and the first-floor dining room was only half full. And yet, it was close to perfection. Winter sun lit the room, the staff bustled, but all the diners around us were taking it slowly. A baby crawled on the floor as its parents caught up with old friends. An elderly couple next to us were dressed up for the occasion and were savouring every dish, every moment. Our food, plump golden croquetas de bacalao, a plate of glistening padron peppers, jewelled with flakes of pure white salt, bread rained on by olive oil, came at an easy pace. The glasses of Adejo seemed to offer a promise of the summer to come. And somewhere, no doubt, a clock ticked, but not here. Hours swam past, phones stayed in pockets. I've told him, next time we're going to the Chinese. The expanding hose we have on the terrace to water the plants has split. So he who cannot fold towels ordered a replacement online. It's just arrived. The brand name, Homos. How did they know? Anyway, it promises that it won't go kinky and will grow to three times its flaccid length. All in all, I think we're going to be very happy. South Korean ambassador and his team had invited me and a squad of Monocle editors to lunch at his residence. Then, the day before, he tested positive for COVID. But the embassy's diplomatic team were keen to press on, and so we headed over to South Kensington on Tuesday. Now, I'm not a petrol head or a vehicle snob, but Josh, Monocle's editor, was put in charge of ordering a car for us all, and I'm not sure what button he pressed, but somehow he managed to get us a sort of miniature-sized van that looked like its next stop would be a scrapyard. Its seats were torn, the floor filthy, and for some reason the driver had a pile of tea towels and dishcloths next to him. We got the driver to drop us off at a very safe distance from the residence's front door, and I have now booked Josh onto a brand awareness course. On Thursday, we had drinks for our staff at Chilton Firehouse. 
the Andre Bellage Hotel, just a stumble from Monocle's HQ. The party was to mark the 15th anniversary of Monocle, and I woke up on Friday wondering if I had drowned a Negroni for every one of those years. We have navigated so many things across that span of crisis-punctured time, so there was lots to celebrate. But for us as managers, it's also important for us to entrust the company and its potential into the hands of new people and every day, not only look back. There was a point during the party when I was standing talking with Lex, Amara, Carol, Camilla and Paige, all of them no doubt school kids I imagine when we started, and I just felt, well, very confident hearing them explain how they see Monocle and what it can and will be in the future. Brands are built on repetition and some changes too. Finally, after some delays, we've opened the new Monocle shop on Chilton Street, twixt Firehouse and Midori. It's a corker. Come and visit. The team will be delighted to show you around and take your money. Very many thanks to Andrew Tuck there. And there was almost some kind of involuntary bladder movement here in the studio when he was talking about his house. Oh, dear. I refrain from comments. <laughs> now, he was talking about the importance of brands, but one brand which it's done itself immeasurable damage this week is P&O, the ferry line. Um, yes, amazingly, they came out on Thursday and said, oh, we're sacking 800 workers. In fact, they wrote to the workers and said, you're being sacked with immediate effect. Get off the premises. Um, and there was even talk of uh, their, their, their own security staff had been given handcuffs to make sure that people did leave. Um, p <laughs> I note on Fridays, p said none of its people were directed to use handcuffs. No, no, no handcuffs. No, honestly, John, no, just, just asking them to leave. Um, but it's, it all boils down to one awful word. Brexit. Yeah, this is what allows them to do it. And all, all those jobs are now being taken by 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 foreign workers. By foreign workers who, because they will be working overseas, the minimum wage, uh, as applied in Britain, doesn't ap- apply to them. Which means they can be paid two dollars an hour for working on board these vessels. Quite quite extraordinary. Uh, there's only really one phrase for it, isn't there? <laughs> I told you so. Absolutely, yes, as I think many of us um, on Monocle and at Monocle and uh, uh, sane people in Britain have been saying for years, before the, before the referendum, since the referendum, uh, it's just the most ridiculous thing that Britain has ever done. Stephen, on that note, thank you very much indeed. That was Stephen Deal. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and our producer, Carlotta Rabello, and... Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>